and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Mihalis Diamantis, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Iowa College of Law. We will discuss his article, The Corporate Insanity Defense, which will be published in the Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology. So welcome to the show, Mihalis. Thanks so much, Brian. I was thrilled when you uh, suggested we do this. I couldn't wait. I was so excited. I love the idea, but I got to start by asking you, Mahalius, what the hell? Are you nuts? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, kind of a kind of an ironic question to, to launch out with on a paper about the insanity defense, right? I don't know if that's suggestive or not. Um, you know, so I had this, uh, I, I write about philosophy of basically corporate criminal law. And I have a mentor who um, basically is encouraging about a lot of my work. And when I proposed this paper to him, he kind of, this is the first time that he balked and he said, you know, I like, I like the kind of work you do, but how long is your faculty going to let you do this stuff? Um, so, you know, interestingly, like this is the one paper that I've written. that's actually um, got, uh, I guess, a little more attention. Um, and I would consider it my furthest out there paper of the sort of theory of corporate criminal law papers that I've written. My, I don't think that the paper is nuts so much as I think that I'm working in a legal space that itself is nuts. Corporate criminal law has so many dysfunctions, right? These are all the things that corporate criminal legal scholars are trying to fix. But setting these dysfunctions aside, it's just a really weird universe. Um, it's a weird universe because it's criminal law as applied to these totally fictitious entities, which are corporations who, by the way, the law also says are people and that we're supposed to be treating them like people in the criminal law. So I'm not nuts. The law is nuts and I'm just rolling with it. <laughs> okay. Well, so help listeners kind of situate themselves, especially if they aren't familiar with criminal law doctrine or with corporate law theory for that matter. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how the insanity defense in criminal law works and how it could even be conceivable to apply something like an insanity defense to a corporation? I will, I'll take those questions in, in reverse order, I guess. Um, how is it conceivable to apply this to corporations in the criminal law? Well, the criminal law tells us that the insanity defense is available to defendants if they satisfy these conditions. Corporations can be criminal defendants. And so it just seems from the plain text of the law that the insanity defense should be available to them if they satisfy the conditions. Now, there's the second question. Can they ever satisfy the elements of the insanity defense? And here's where you might want to ask yourself, what is the insanity defense really trying to do? And I think there are two perspectives to take on the insanity defense and what it's really trying to achieve. One, which is, I think, the perspective that I would say most scholars tend to take, is that the insanity defense is about recognizing that there are some defendants some people who have committed crime, they satisfy all the elements of the crime, yet because of some sort of mental disease or defect, they are unblameable for having committed the crime and so should, beyond, should, should be beyond criminal sanction. Um, and 
That's one perspective on the insanity defense. It's basically an excusing mechanism to recognize that there are people who have committed crimes but are nonetheless morally innocent. The perspective that I take in this paper draws on that to some extent. I think there are some circumstances where corporations end up committing crime and are nonetheless blameless where the insanity defense should apply. But my focus in the paper is has been more on another perspective you might have on the insanity defense, which emphasizes the need to take care of victims in the criminal law. So what do victims deserve in the criminal law? I think what they deserve first and foremost is some recognition that the harms that they suffered matter. And the best way the criminal justice system can convey that to victims is to basically make sure to the extent the criminal justice system can that those harms don't recur, whether to the victims themselves or to other potential future victims. Now, when you have um, a legally insane criminal defendant, it leaves the law with um, the traditional tools that we use for sanctioning criminal conduct can't make good on this thing we want to do for victims to make sure this harm doesn't recur because the types of things we do for defendants when we convict them of crime don't address the underlying issues that led them to commit crime to victimize people in the first place. You put somebody who is legally insane in jail and their mental illness worsens. You don't put them in jail and you just release them back to the street and their mental condition remains unaddressed. And so there's a very high likelihood that there will be future victims. The insanity defense provides an opportunity not to punish a defendant, but instead to divert the defendant to treatment to neutralize the dangerous potential of the defendant that their mental disease or defect might lead them to before releasing them back to the public. And so this, I think, is the best way to uh, really ensure that the criminal law is taking care of, acknowledging the suffering that victims go through at the hands of criminal defendants who have qualified for the insanity defense. So from a kind of legal doctrinal perspective, how do we know whether someone, a person, a regular person, not a corporate person, qualifies as insane for the purpose of criminal culpability? Like, what do you have to prove? Is it the same everywhere or is it different, different places? And sort of what's the substantive sort of requirement for the insanity defense? The requirements have changed over time. It's, the insanity defense is an ancient defense that we see in ancient Hebrew, Roman, Greek law. Um, in our common law tradition, the oldest records we have of the insanity defense um, are of the insanity defense, of, of a wild beast version of the insanity defense. The thought basically is that if the defendant is basically so mentally incapacitated as to effectively be like a wild beast, well, wild beasts are not blamable for the things they do, and so this defendant isn't, so we give them a defense. After several centuries of evolution, we now basically have, at least in the United States, two versions of the insanity defense, both of which track different reasons in moral philosophy. You think that someone might be blameless even if they've done something wrong. The first version of the insanity defense is the volitional 
version. This basically says that if the defendant couldn't control what they were doing because of a mental disease or defect, then they shouldn't, they're not blameworthy for what they did and they show they shouldn't be punished for it. The most common version of this standard comes from the MPC put out by the American Law Institute and it basically says that if the defendant lacks the substantial capacity to conform his conduct to the requirements of the law. So that's the volitional prong of the insanity defense. The other version is the, the cognitive prong, which basically says that someone is taps into the intuition, that someone is blameless if they didn't know what they were doing is wrong, if some mental disease or defect causes them not to appreciate the wrongfulness of what they're, of what they're doing. Um, and so the most common formulation, this again comes from the MPC, that because of a disease or mental disease or defect, the defendant lacks the substantial capacity to appreciate the wrongfulness of, of his conduct. And so those are really the two standards. Different states subscribe to different combinations of the volitional and cognitive um, prongs. Um, after the last, I would before uh, like the 1980s or so, the volitional prong seemed to have been more common, but now there's been more of a turn towards the cognitive prong. So I'd say most states have the cognitive prong of the insanity defense. Many also subscribe to the volitional prong. In federal law, which is kind of the space where corporate criminal law mostly operates, we only have the cognitive prong. Well, so when it comes to a corporation, we're talking about a legal entity, I mean, kind of a legal fiction, right? How do we think, how should we think about volition and cognition in relation to a corporation? Yeah. So here's kind of where there is a legal sleight of hand that takes place in the paper, where if you dig into the the text of what the volitional and cognitive prongs mean, we use these terms volition and cognition in describing what the tests are, but the tests don't actually refer to cognition or volition or will and understanding or things like that. Rather, just to take the volitional prong of the defense, the text requires that the defendant lacked the substantial capacity to control his conduct. And while corporations might not have volitions or wills, capacities are things that they have. What does it mean for a corporation to have the capacity to control its conduct? Well, first you have to understand what corporate conduct is. Corporate conduct is the conduct of its employees taken within the scope of their employment and with some intent to benefit the corporation. That's just the doctrine of respondeat superior, we all know from tort law and, uh, and corporate criminal law. And a corporation's capacity to control its own conduct, therefore, is just the corporation's capacity to control its employees, i.e. by setting up training systems, um, setting up auditing systems, generally sort of the compliance programs that corporations have around them in the first place in order to direct their employees on the right side of the law. And so what would it mean for a corporation to lack the substantial capacity to, to control its employees? It would mean that, well, a corporation, despite exercising reasonable efforts to implement compliance to control its employees' conduct, to steer it to the right side of the law, um, nonetheless, over at least some employee, lacked the ability to control that, what, that, what that employee was doing. We call those employees in corporate criminal law rogues, employees who um, subvert corporate compliance 
protocols in order to pursue crime, usually for self-interested reasons. So thinking about this in relation to corporations then, how do we distinguish between a corporation that lacks volition or cognition necessary to be criminally culpable and one that has it? I mean, does it does this run the risk of essentially saying that corporations shouldn't be criminally liable at all? Uh, so I would not – I definitely would not want that result. I hope I'm not setting up a slippery slope. Um, but I think I can tell stories where there are clear cases of corporations that can appreciate the difference between right and wrong, can control their employees, and stories of corporations or provide examples of corporations that couldn't control their employees and whose employees could not appreciate the difference between right and wrong. And so as long as we have those clear cases, then it's a matter of, of line drawing. And that line drawing between the criminally insane and the criminally sane is a factual question and a moral question for the jury. So I think the, the burden that I have is to give the jury some kind of guidance about how it should think about what that line is. And then on the backside to show that there are clear cases that fall into, into either category. So a corporation that has the, that lacks the capacity, let's say, the substantial capacity to control its conduct in a particular instance would again be just one that has a rogue employee. So you might have a corporation that has taken all reasonable efforts to implement the not even the best compliance program, but a compliance program reasonably tailored to the sorts of risks that that corporation faces. And then you have an employee who does everything they can to subvert the compliance program and to engage in misconduct. Now, everybody recognizes that no matter how good a compliance program a corporation has, there is some potential, some risk of employee malfeasance. And so I, I would say, I would put it to my readers, that so long as a corporation has implemented a reasonable level of compliance, and then an employee goes on to subvert that compliance to commit some kind of misconduct, that would be a corporation that, with respect to that employee and the conduct of that employee, which is attributable to the corporation as its own conduct, over that employee, the corporation lacked the substantial capacity to control him or her. Now, that doesn't mean that every time an employee does something wrong, the corporation lacks the substantial capacity to control it. It might be that a corporation never made any effort to implement a compliance program, in which case they weren't ever try even trying to control the employee's conduct. Or it might be that the corporation encouraged the employee to engage in certain kinds of misconduct because it also happened to be profitable to the corporation. But so long as there is some effort to exercise control over the employee, some robust, reasonable effort, and the employee nonetheless, without the corporation's knowledge or acquiescence, goes on to do something wrong, I think it's a plausible case to say that the corporation lacked the capacity to control it. Well, so I guess part of me is wondering why we would want to adopt this defense in a corporate context. I mean, after all, when it comes to human defendants, it seems to me that at least part of the concern alleviated by the insanity defense is the suffering inflicted upon an undeserving uh, 
criminal defendant. In other words, if they're insane, they don't deserve to be punished. And therefore, there's a wrong associated with inflicting the punishment. But when it comes to a corporation, there's no person. So why should we be concerned about punishing them criminally, even if they maybe don't satisfy these volitional or cognitive expectations that we would otherwise have? Yeah, I guess I guess the reason that we should be concerned about improperly punishing corporations is that although the corporation itself is a shell, it's a fiction, it's not a real entity, behind the corporation there are real people whose lives and livelihoods are bound up with the health of the corporation. These are the corporation's employees, the corporation's shareholders, the corporation's creditors, depending on the corporation to some extent, perhaps even even its customers. So I think we need to make sure before we impose some kind of sanction on a corporation, which will end up flowing through and burdening these other stakeholders, most of whom in most cases are going to be entirely innocent of any misconduct within the corporation. Before we end up burdening them, we need to have a pretty good case, pretty good sense that the corporation actually is culpable, is deserving of some kind of sanction, or at a minimum that some kind of sanction would be would further other criminal justice goals. And I just don't think we have that in the case of a corporation, which, as I define it, is legally insane. This is one the reason we have the insanity defense for individuals. We recognize, as you said in your question, there's no retributive interest that we have in punishing insane individuals. If they could not control their conduct, there's no case for holding them culpable for what they did. I'd say the same thing for a corporation. If the corporation could not control its conduct, there's no case for holding it culpable for what it did, no retributive case. The other question is about deterrence. Um, and so another reason we have the insanity defense for individuals is, well, if an individual is legally insane, the deterrent effect of sanctioning them is likely to be minimal. If they can't appreciate the difference from right and wrong or even control their conduct, then what deterrent effect can there be to punishing them? In the case for corporations, the argument is a little bit different. I mean, we could, if we punish the corporation, encourage it to implement even stricter compliance. But in the kinds of cases that I'm imagining, the corporation already has a reasonable compliance program in place. So if we were trying to encourage the corporation to do more than that by sanctioning them in the criminal law, we'd be asking the corporation to implement an unreasonable level of compliance, to be taking on additional costs, which again filter down to these innocent parties, which are unreasonably calibrated to the risks that the corporation actually faces. So the deterrent aim of criminal law is also not served by punishing these corporations because by hypothesis, the corporation is already doing everything we want it to do from a criminal justice and preventive perspective. I mean, I guess one question that I have and that I kind of had to some degree when reading your paper is, you know, whether this doesn't still kind of call into question the idea of criminally sanctioning corporations when at least on some level, what they're doing is making a utility calculation about what kind of programs they're going to adopt. I mean, what on your theory would make a corporation appropriately criminally liable as opposed to merely negligent when it comes to appropriately controlling its employees? 
Yeah, this is a this is a a much deeper question that I don't try to tackle in this paper, which is, you know, are are corporations ever culpable to the extent that it makes sense to criminally sanction them? And I think there there are two things to distinguish there. One is what we mean by criminally sanctioning a corporation, and the second is what we mean by um, uh, culpable such that it makes sense to convict them in criminal law. Because in the view that I'm developing, this is not only in this paper but sort of in a series of articles. Um, I want to I want to distinguish these two inquiries. Like, what would it take to convict a corporation appropriately, and then on the back end after that, what sort of sanction is appropriate to corporations. The kind of sanction that I that I favor for corporations, and this I guess provides a little more context to, to the paper, is I don't think we should be fining corporations. Um, I think the fine is um, uh, a not very effective sanction because to the extent with criminal law, we're trying to make corporations suffer. The fine is not going to do that because corporations don't suffer. All the fine does is it burdens innocent stakeholders of the corporation and makes them suffer. And so to the extent we're just making innocent people suffer, it seems retributively inappropriate. And then because a fine hits the corporation as an entity, but not the individuals who control the corporation, so not the executive specifically, a fine is going to have a little deterrent effect for corporations as well. So the kind of sanction that I favor for corporations rather is coerced rehabilitation. That's, if I had my druthers, that would be the end product of the criminal justice process for all corporations. In this paper, The Corporate Insanity Defense, I'm arguing for effectively coerced rehabilitation, coerced treatment, reform of corporations, but just for the narrower set of corporations that I'm calling legally insane because I think I've got a separate argument, legal argument, for how we can do that for them. Then the first question is before we, you know, before we even get to the whole sanctioning point, what would it mean for a corporation to be culpable? And here, my general approach is just to kind of throw it back onto common perceptions we all have about corporate misconduct. We can make judgments about individuals when they've done something which we think is morally culpable. We look at what the individual has done. We look at the context in which the individual did it. We look at what they knew, what they intended, and then we make an assessment about whether the individual is morally blameworthy. And it turns out, if you just read the popular press, if you talk to the cognitive scientists, we do the exact same thing with groups like corporations. These kind of cohesive groups that seem to act in motivated and intentional ways. So I think if you were to ask me, what does it mean for a corporation to be culpable? Well, show me one and I'll tell you. Um, it's kind of the, uh, um, it's, uh, I, I, think, I think it's a very common sense notion that we really have to have to try not to see it. Um, it's in the news. It's in, as I said, in the psychology journals. And I think it's part of everyone's common experience as they read about the various corporate atrocities that seem to crop up on a weekly basis. I wonder how you think what rehabilitation for a corporation that satisfies the requirements for the insanity defense that you suggest would look like. I mean, after all, when it comes to an individual defendant, we, you know, send people who qualify for the insanity defense for mental health treatment. And if they're cured, then they eventually can be 
released. For a corporation, I mean, it seems like once you extirpate the individuals who are creating the quote unquote insane behavior, like presto changeo, what what a quick cure. Is that all it takes or should, do you think there should be something more to it? I think in some cases, that's all it takes. And in some cases, corporations are very proactive. They discover an individual who's committed crime. I mean, the DOJ comes knocking at your door and they say, we think this person is engaging in insider trading. The first thing the corporation is going to do is well, A, maybe conduct some minimal investigation and then B, put that person on leave and then eventually fire them. Um, now, if it was just an isolated incident, right, um, then I think the corporation has basically done all that it needs to do. Um, and maybe there's no further treatment or reform that that corporation needs. It might be something akin to an episode of temporary insanity on the part of the corporation. But sometimes there are defects in corporations that go beyond isolated individuals. There might be um, cultural systems within corporations that are defective and that kind of blur the line between ethical and unethical conduct. There might be promotion metrics and quotas that emphasize productivity over compliance with the law and encourage or foster malfeasance. Um, so there might be um, there might be organizational dispositions that kind of turn individuals into criminals rather than just being individuals who come into the corporation as as criminals. In those contexts, we really need something directed towards the corporation as a whole. Otherwise, you just swap out one individual with another, and those mechanisms are going to set at work, um, influencing that individual, distorting their sense of right and wrong, and pushing them towards the kind of misbehavior that the corporation stands accused of. So in those contexts, I think there is some work for rehabilitation to do. So, Mahalis, I can't help but wondering whether your proposal is situated within any particular theory of justification for uh, criminal uh, prosecution or criminal punishment, and specifically criminal punishment of corporations, or whether you think it has kind of cross-theoretical potential appeal. I think it has cross-theoretical uh, potential appeal, though I will say that my perspective on everything that I do in corporate criminal law is very down to earth. I mean, I know a lot of the stuff that I write is out there. I mean, you started off the interview with a gesture towards that. Um, but the thing which motivates me is that ultimately I want the corporate criminal justice system to be directed towards reducing corporate misconduct. And just as for insane criminal individuals, I think for insane criminal corporations, what reducing corporate misconduct requires is sometimes not sanction, not a fine, but rather effective treatment to render the individual or the corporation less dangerous, less of a danger to the public. Um, so I would say in, 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 all of my, in all of my work, the thing which interests me in, in this case, the corporate insanity defense, in other papers, corporate personal identity, in other papers, corporate epistemology, is using this 
fiction, this weird perspective that we have in the criminal law that corporations are people and seeing how if we really take that seriously in a way that I don't think many people are really prepared to do or haven't really explored the full oddity of that assumption, right? That the fiction that corporations are people. I think if you really dive into that, we can oftentimes see that a lot of the doctrines that we have developed for real people for preventing their misconduct could apply to corporations as well and effectively help us prevent corporate misconduct too. Well, so in closing, Mahalis, I wonder if you could say a little something about what, if anything, your paper and your broader project might tell us about the way that we conceptualize corporate intentionality and this kind of metaphor of a corporation as a person within the law. In other words, does thinking about the potential for corporate insanity in any way help us better understand what we're doing when we talk about corporations in egoistic terms? One thing that I hope that this paper does um, and it, it, its trajectory is um, I had a lot of fun writing this paper, but it's not a playful paper because it's about very serious topics. Um, but one thing I, I, I hope it does is that it um, opens up the possibility that by indulging in something which might seem um, either weird or um, politically um, to a lot of people uh, objectionable, this sort of notion of corporate personhood. But instead of taking a political perspective, we really take a philosophical perspective and ask ourselves, what would it really mean for corporations to be people and allow that inquiry to unfold that we might discover that there are actually some really sensible doctrines that start to emerge for how we think about what it means for a corporation to, as you said, have, have an intention or what it means to sanction a corporation or what it means for a corporation to still be the same corporation, even though it's gone through several mergers and splits 10 years after it's committed a crime, that we can find doctrines which, um, although philosophically inspired, are ultimately motivated and justified by the same sorts of concerns that we all have when we come to the corporate criminal justice system. Awesome. Well, Mahalis, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, I really was excited to read this paper when I first saw it on Twitter, and it did not disappoint. And uh, talking to you about it has been a real pleasure. Well, thank you, Brian. The pleasure is mine, too. Okay, kids, let's go. There's just one place to go for all your spatula needs. Spatula City! Spatula City! A giant warehouse of spatulas for every occasion. Thousands to choose from in every shape, size, and color. And because we eliminate the middleman, we can sell all our spatulas factory direct to you. Where do you go when you want to buy name brand spatulas at a fraction of retail cost? Spatula City! Spatula City! And this weekend only, take advantage of our special liquidation sale. Buy nine spatulas, get the tenth one for just one penny. Thank you.
Don't forget, they make great Christmas presents. And what better way to say I love you than with the gift of a spatula? Spatula City! Spatula City! Hello, this is Cy Greenbloom, president of Spatula City. I like their spatula so much, I bought the company. Spatula City, seven locations. We're in the yellow pages under spatulas. My, where did you get that lovely spatula? Spatula City, we sell spatulas. And that's all. 